What's up, everyone? Happy Saturday. You're watching Weekends with Anna Kasparian and Nando Vila. Nando, it's someone's birthday. It is someone's birthday. We should call him out. He's probably not ready for it. He hasn't put his... Yeah, yeah. There he is. Kale, happy birthday. He got the haircut and everything. He's been ready. I got a haircut for producer Kale's birthday as well. You know, we got to look good. Nice. Nice. Cuts all around. That's... Yeah. What were you guys doing? I mean, Kale, I'm I'm assuming you got your hair cut by a barber, right? Or did you? Okay. So did you guys ever attempt like cutting your own hair or having a partner cut your hair for you? No? No. No. Come on. No. You crazy? I I cut (laughs) Christian hair. The people people have to to enjoy uh, the Jackman Weekend Show. If I cut my own hair, we'd lose like subscribers (laughs) and fans uh, in record time. (laughs) The only thing I'll do is like, you know, a little kind of hair falling over the ears when it's growing out a little bit. Just the little, you know, you mm-hmm. can't have that. You have, to, you have to trim it a little bit, make it look nice. Mm. I have to yeah. say, I mean, yes, I, I got a haircut from a barber, but um, and some of my friends make fun of me for this. But my mom's a hairdresser, so I typically get my haircut by my mom. But then it's also that's the cutest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, Yeah. that's amazing. I wish I wish I could do that. Yeah, right. Yeah. So it's it's a good time to see my parents to get a haircut. Just all works. out. Well, that's why that's why your hair always looks flowy and beautiful. With like, I mean, it's just luminous. Yeah, Yeah. it's the most beautiful hair ever. Yeah, I I see that. Makes total sense. We we sound like total stoners right now. Oh, it's those beautiful <laughs> hair. <laughs> well, like anyway, we're not. Weekends, folks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, um, you know, despite the way we sound right now, uh, we're actually, well, at least I can say I'm sober. Um, you guys sound sober too. And we're going to have a fantastic show. Um, New York State Senator Julia Salazar will be joining us later mm-hmm. uh, to talk about how New York is doing with coronavirus, uh, along with some of the successes of the New York chapter of DSA. Um, really interesting story there that I think, for obvious reasons, isn't really being picked up um, by national press. Um, and I think it's an important element to the ongoing debate between so-called moderates and progressives in federal government, right? Yes. Um, if you look at the local level, socialist policies actually really resonate um, with with people, with, with constituents in the various um, districts in New York that saw some success uh, with the DSA. So we'll talk about that. Um, student loan debt is back in the news, which I'm actually really happy about. Uh, you know, discussions on what we can do about it. Nando's going to focus on that uh, for his Decode segment. I'm going to talk about China, as, as Trump China. would say. <laughs> China. China. <laughs> It's it's time for a, an update on the ever escalating tensions between the United States and China. But more importantly, you know, we need to have a, a better understanding of what drives these tensions, why the rhetoric for a new Cold War is really being ratcheted up, not just by the Trump administration, but even by the incoming Biden administration as well. Um, but before we get to all of that, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about corporate welfare, Nando. Mm-hmm. Um, little Little... More prepared for our banter segment today than usual because, you know, 
Tyson was in the news this week because it's being sued uh, for wrongful death. Dozens of its employees have actually died during the pandemic. And now we're learning more details about the accusations against Tyson, the way that they treated their workers. We found out that in one meatpacking plant, uh, the managers there were essentially taking bets on how many of their employees would get sick. They were packed into uh, tight quarters. They were told to ignore their uh, coronavirus-related symptoms and keep working. It's just, it's such a, it's so disgusting. Like, reading the way that those workers have been treated is absolutely disgusting. And what's amazing is that the United States has been getting increasingly frustrated with China because we've been exporting our meat to China. And what do they do once our meat gets there? They test it. They test it to make sure it's safe. They don't want the you know virus to surge again in their country. <laughs> and so they've done all these temporary suspensions on meat imports coming in from um, you know from the United States. And like the U.S. has the audacity to get upset about that. No, how yeah. about take a good hard look at how your workers are being treated, and you know. E- If the U.S. government doesn't care about people's lives, which I think at this point is abundantly clear, and all they care about is the bottom line, helping out these corporations, ensuring that we're exporting meat to China, then it's hurting, you know, your economic agenda as well. But they don't care. Let's just get mad at China and make them the bad guys. So, um, but related to that story, Nando, is a new study that was ordered by Bernie Sanders that I wanted to talk about. And it shows that both Walmart and McDonald's have the highest number of employees on government programs, including Medicaid and food stamps. And so this study was done by the Government Accountability Office, and it looks at data from 11 states in February of this year. The reason why they focused on 11 states is because these were the states that had the most reliable data pertaining to um, employees and, you know, how many of them are on Medicaid, how many of them are on food stamps, and where do these individuals work? So here's what the Government Accountability Office found. Walmart was one of the top four employees of SNAP and Medicaid beneficiaries in every state. McDonald's was in the top five of employers with employees receiving federal benefits in at least nine states. In the nine states that responded, okay, that responded about SNAP benefits, Arkansas, Georgia, Indiana, Maine, Massachusetts, Nebraska, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Washington, Walmart was found to have employed about 14,500 workers receiving the benefit, followed by McDonald's with 8,780. Let me give you some more numbers, Nando, and then I want your reaction. Um, In six states that reported Medicaid enrollees, Walmart again topped the list with 10,350 employees, followed by McDonald's with 4,600. And, you know, a a common argument that we hear is, well, we're we're probably talking about part-time workers, right? Part-time workers who just can't make ends meet with their part-time jobs. And as a result, they have to rely on government assistance in order to, you know, be able to pay some of their bills. But the reality is 70% of these people are full-time workers. They're working full-time for these companies that dodge taxes. And these employees have to rely on the government in order to survive. There's a huge problem there, obviously. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, Walmart is obviously the the largest employer in the United States. Like more Americans work for Walmart than for any other corporation. It is, um, you know, it's just such a fundamental failure of a social system that if you work full-time, you know, if you, if you, you have a full-time job and you cannot make enough money to 
afford food and healthcare. Like that's just that's just a fundamentally broken system that we live in. And you know, Liza Featherstone, a Jacobin writer, wrote a whole book about the difficulties in in unionizing Walmart. Um, you know that there's been long time struggles and attempts, and it's just never they've never been able to do it. Um, but that, that's what happens. I mean, that's that's why they do that. So they'd be able to pay their workers literally starvation wages. <laughs> you know, like right. were it not right. for federal food assistance programs, they would literally starve. It's like not not just like a rhetorical trick. It's literally starvation wages. And you know, in 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 the wake of the pandemic. Um, like a handful of corporations, Walmart amongst them, just have seen their profits soar. Obviously, because yep. um, because like as 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 all other retail um, stores basically collapse, which is a trend that was already happening um, in the last several decades. It's just been accelerated by the pandemic. You know, like um, people people need to buy their basic goods. You know, from from Walmart more than ever. Same with Amazon, which has also seen its stock price surge. Um, you know, and Warren Gunnels, uh, uh, who is Bern- one of Bernie's top kind of uh, staff members, um, just on Twitter is just constantly pointing out <laughs> as as regular people are seeing their wealth destroyed because of the pandemic. Uh, the billionaires who own Walmart, the Wal- the Walton family, um, just keep getting richer. They just, they just keep getting yeah. richer. Um, and it's just, yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, it's it's incredible because as with previous crises. It's an opportunity for people who are already rich to get richer, right? Don't let a good uh, crisis go to waste. And that's exactly what's happening here. Um, And we're seeing that um, inequality, that gap really widen at this point. And so, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, the the record profits, and I think it is important to get into some of those numbers. Um, So first, just a few more statistics regarding the the number of employees who have to rely on government aid because their employers don't pay them a living wage. Um, In Arkansas, where Walmart was founded um, and maintains its headquarters, 1,318 were receiving SNAP benefits. That's 3.1% of the state's total. McDonald's, next on the list with 865 workers, made for um, 2% of the state's total. Another 3% of SNAP recipients in Georgia worked for Walmart. So imagine like this highly profitable company employing a sizable chunk of the entire state's Medicaid and food stamp uh, recipients. Like it's just, it's, it's insane. And uh, when it comes to profits, uh, Walmart, for instance, reported $5.1 billion in net income uh, for the third quarter of 2020 this week. Um, as businesses have surged uh, or business has surged during the pandemic, McDonald's reported a net income of $1.76 billion over the same period. And again, uh, we're talking about uh, 70% of their, uh, of 21 million people receiving Medicaid and SNAP benefits. This is a huge volume of people who, yeah. again, are working full time and are not getting paid what they should get paid. And so we're subsidizing, uh, these companies essentially. We, the taxpayers, yeah. um, are subsidizing what these companies refuse to pay their employees in a living wage. And we keep hearing from this propaganda machine that people who need government assistance are lazy, that they don't want to work, that they don't want to pull themselves up by the bootstraps, when in reality, they're working full-time jobs. Yeah, and that right there, the profits, I mean, that's what labor power does. I mean, there is a pie, you know, and it either goes to capital, the owners, or it goes to labor, the workers. And if the, and if the workers are organizing, there is a labor union that can fight for a greater share of that pie 
then they will get it, you know, but without, without that, then the, the owners have just all the ability to take as much of that pie as basically they want because they have a gun to your right. head, you know, like, uh, so, um, and in this case, like, I mean, they're actually even just relying on the state to, to subsidize <laughs> low wages, which is just, which is absolutely crazy. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it, I, I tell some of my, my friends back in Spain, you know, when when they were like asking, like, why did Hillary lose to Trump or whatever? Like when I t- explained to them that the sort of left of center candidate <laughs> in the United States for the for the sort of left party in a two party system was a former board member of Walmart, the largest employer in the United States. Like they're they look at me like I'm like I'm lying. And I'm like, no, 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 this is true. Like Hillary Clinton yeah. was on the board of Walmart. You know, Bill Clinton was the governor of Arkansas, which is the 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 head where where Walmart is headquartered. And it's like they they it just it's so mind blowing to them that that would even be available, like that that would even be a a, a path to political power um, from a left politician. Um, but yeah, I mean, it just it's it's hard to overstate the importance of Walmart as a corporation, not just in terms of the amount of workers it employs, but also just the the it, it it's become kind of like a de facto almost like town square for like tons of mm-hmm. small um communities and 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 towns in the middle of in, in like in rural america like if you if you, i've driven across the united states and it's 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 kind of it's kind of depressing to just see town after town after town which is just hollowed out completely yeah. um and then there's yeah. just like a giant walmart that yeah it's it's really crazy I remember for the um, 2016 RNC, which was in Cleveland, um, like TYT, like did not plan ahead and did not have enough money to actually book a hotel close to the venue. So we had to drive out pretty far. Um, and so the area that we were in, what it seemed pretty rural. I can't remember what it was called at this point. Um, but you're absolutely right. The only thing that was in that town was this giant Walmart superstore. And it was just it was bleak. It was it was pretty depressing. And uh, since we're talking about Walmart, it is important to note that while um, these states are subsidizing these companies because they refuse to pay their workers a living wage, uh, they don't pay back into the system. They find ways to avoid doing that. Um, Here's one, just one headline from Quartz. Walmart dodged up to $2.6 billion in U.S. tax through a fictitious Chinese entity, former executive says. (laughs) And so, uh, oh, God. China. China, Walmart baby. and the Walton family received tax breaks and taxpayer subsidies estimated at more than $7.8 billion a year. Um, but don't yeah. worry, if you're uh, an employee or you're considering employment at one of these companies, um, you know, at least a few years ago, McDonald's did have a hotline to help their workers. And here's how that went down. McResource Line, how can I help you? Hi, I'm Nancy. I wanted more information about the help that I need. I can give you a number that will be helpful. You can ask about things like um, food pantries. Are you on um, SNAP? SNAP is uh, Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Food Stamp. Do you have kids? Are you yeah. yeah, I have two kids. Yeah. Um, you would most likely be eligible for SNAP benefits. You know, mentioning the food, I didn't, I didn't know about this. You know, it's a federal program. Federal money comes down to the states and the states administer it. And what about, like, the doctor? Did you try to get on Medicaid? Medicaid is a federal program. It's health coverage for low-income or no-income adults and children. It's so So dystopian. (laughs) 
It's, it's so amazing. dystopian. It's like, yeah. Here's what we'll do. We'll teach you about uh, how you can apply for government assistance. Don't expect your boss or your employer to pay you a living wage, even if you're a full-time worker, um, and F off. That was yeah. the uh, that was the helpline. Yeah. 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 So. It's, it's really bleak. Um, but should we do, uh, should we do, should we address our, our corporate overlords or overlords who pay the bills around here? Um. <laughs> yes. Yes. Actually, um, it's the opposite of bleak. It's our wonderful sponsor, Verso yes. Book. So Nando, tell me more about them. Well, Anna, as you know, it's November. Thanksgiving is just around the corner. And that means that there are new Verso Book Club picks. Join the Verso Book Club and you get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one to three books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off all books for as long as you are a subscriber. To celebrate 50 years of radical publishing, each member tier is 50% off of for your first three months. The reader tier is only $5 a month and includes all of Verso's ebooks. That's 18 ebooks in November. The Comrade tier is $20 a month, and if you join in November, you'll get Automation and the Future of Work by Aaron Benanov, Feminist International, How to Change Everything by Veronica Gago, Critical Encounters, Capitalism, Democracy, Ideas by Wolfgang Streak, The Corona Crash, How the Pandemic Will Change Capitalism by Grace Blakely. Yep. That's Verso, baby. Love it. That's Verso. Yeah. All right. Um, so I'm going to move on. Uh, I know that we're going a little long today, and I don't want to cut into our awesome interview. So we're going to do um, a mix of domestic and foreign stuff today, uh, which I like. Um, honestly, I'm. I just I can't I can't take the election anymore. It's driving me crazy. Yeah. Like I just yeah. want it to be over. Just anyway, but. Um, I wanted to uh, do an update on China. So let's talk about uh, why we're seeing um, tensions escalate between the United States and China and what's likely to happen under a Biden administration. So this week, the Trump administration withdrew or at least announced that it plans to withdraw troops from both Afghanistan and Iraq, two wars that the United States has been involved in for decades. CBS News has learned that the Pentagon expects the president to order a withdrawal of about 2,000 American forces in Afghanistan and 500 in Iraq by mid-January. That would leave about 2,500 U.S. troops in each country. Acting Defense Secretary Christopher Miller said in a message to employees last night that he wants to bring the current war to an end in a responsible manner. The key word there is responsible. The key word there is we want to keep the troops there as long as humanly possible because defense contractors make money that way. Uh, that's my decode <laughs> in this segment. But he's not the only one. Miller's not the only one. Uh, the reactions to Trump's move were exactly what you would expect from some of the more hawkish members of Congress. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is just one example. And the president is already getting pushback from his own party, including Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who said a rapid withdrawal would hurt our allies and delight the people who wish us harm. Military officials worry leaving too few troops in Afghanistan could lead to more violence in the region. The United States and its involvement in the region has led to more violence. So we already know that 
spreading democracy or doing something about human rights or keeping the peace is not ever really the State Department's goal. It's what they tell the American people in order to sell these wars, in order to manufacture consent among the American people. Uh, But in reality, the truth is it's all about the Benjamins. It's all about making money and it's all about ensuring that these defense contractors who spend millions and millions of dollars every year in lobbying get what they want uh, with perpetual wars. Now, some defense contractors, though, are ahead of the game. And what they're focusing on is maybe different region, maybe another opportunity to make some money, maybe ratchet up tensions and ratchet up war rhetoric with China. That could work out. And so when I saw this tweet from Li Fang, um, I immediately thought about China. CEO of defense contracting giant Litos to investors regarding Trump's withdrawal of troops. And of course, we're talking about troops being taken out of Iraq and Afghanistan. If it quiets down in Iraq and Afghanistan, it's going to get hot someplace else, China, <laughs> or of course, uh, you know, Asia. Um, and unfortunately, history has told us, uh, history has told us is that there's always a place to deploy troops. So, um, You know, defense contractors have been working with think tanks uh, for quite some time now in an effort to pivot to Asia. And we saw the beginning beginning of that uh, during the Obama administration, which I'll get to in just a second. But some of you might be asking, like, hey, Anna, it seems like you're focusing on China based on no evidence. Like no one here has mentioned China yet, except for this. In the context of the story regarding Trump pulling troops out of the Middle East, uh, we got a quote from Senator Josh Hawley, and here's what he said. Americans deserve to see their tax dollars actually being used to defend them from Chinese domination above all, or, yeah, reinvested at home and their families and communities. I guess I'll add that too. Okay. So let's talk about China, because While we're focusing on the fact that Donald Trump is refusing to concede, which is worth focusing on, behind the scenes, tensions are certainly escalating. And the truth of the matter is, it has nothing to do with political ideology. It has nothing to do with Democrats. It has nothing to do with Republicans. It has everything to do with a very unique system of legalized bribery that allows not only defense contractors, but foreign countries to fund an extensive lobbying effort to (laughs) militarize countries in in that region. And so let me share um, some info about you know, what came out this week in regard to a recent report. So just this week, the U.S. Department's Office of Policy Planning released what they referred to as a blueprint for America's response, America's response to China's rise as a superpower. The unclassified paper Axios writes, called The Elements of the China Challenge, draws inspiration from an influential article published in 1947 by the policy planning team's founder, U.S. diplomat George Kennan in which he introduced the idea of containment as a strategy to deal with the Soviet Union. So you can already see the parallels to the Cold War, which is why if you you know read anything about uh, current tensions with China, it's commonly referred to as the new Cold War. And so um, here's what the report argues that the United States and its allies need to do. Meeting the China challenge requires the United States to return to the fundamentals 
The U.S. must fashion sturdy policies that stand above bureaucratic squabbles and interagency turf battles and transcend short-term election cycles. The United States' overarching aim should be to secure freedom. So already we're hearing the same type of rhetoric, the same type of jargon that's used um, to rally support for wars abroad, right? The playbook is similar to what we've uh, seen before uh, with the federal government, when the federal government tries to drum up uh, support for intervention in other countries. So it's no surprise that the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, who couldn't care less about human rights, just based on the way people are being treated here in the United States and at the border, by the way, um, deliver speeches that sound like this. We opened our arms to Chinese citizens only to see the Chinese Communist Party exploit our free and open society. China sent propagandists into our press conferences, our research centers, our high schools, our colleges, and even into our PTA meetings. We marginalized our friends in Taiwan, which later blossomed into a vigorous democracy. We gave the Chinese Communist Party and the regime itself special economic treatment, only to see the CCP insist on silence over its human rights abuses. Oh, oh, yeah. I'm I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure Pompeo is very concerned about human rights abuses in China. And look, we need to be honest about the situation on the ground. We need to be honest about uh, these manufactured tensions uh, that are brewing right now. And I'll tell you why they're manufactured in just a second. But we on the left also have to be real about human rights abuses that do take place in China. That doesn't mean that you engage um, in a hostile way. It doesn't mean that you engage militarily, but you have to acknowledge, um, you know, with the Uyghur Muslims um, being uh, detained in these re-education camps, it is a problem. But that is not what Mike Pompeo is concerned about, not in the slightest. And so that same report that I was referring to that was released by the State Department also uh, says that, you know, Maybe we need to maintain the world's strongest military. That needs to be a priority. Strengthening our alliance system and creating new international organizations to promote democracy and human rights. Uh, Those international organizations um, typically will pretend to value those very things, democracy and human rights. But uh, typically speaking, that's not what's going on. It's usually uh, based on economic interests, self-interests, educating Americans about the China challenge, meaning propaganda, train a new generation of public servants who understand great power competition with China, reforming the U.S. education system to help students understand the responsibility of citizenship in a complex information age, meaning Don't pay attention to anything that questions these manufactured tensions with China. And finally, championing uh, the principles of freedom in a word and in deed. So um, I'm going to go ahead and fast forward a little bit and talk about how, not just how, but why I keep saying that these tensions are manufactured to an extent. Now, China is kicking our asses technologically. Uh, Silicon Valley is certainly concerned about the competition that China poses. So that's very real. But what isn't real is China allegedly being some sort of hostile threat to the United States. And based on the way that we've heard uh, members of the Trump administration talk about uh, about China, you would think that they pose an imminent threat to the United States, and they don't. Um, but the real pivot to Asia didn't start under Trump. It started under Barack Obama. 
And the influencing factor here was um, this think tank that uh, unfortunately Steve Bannon has given an important role to in the State Department. So uh, the think tank I'm referring to is uh, Project 2049, uh, Project 2049 Institute. And uh, this think tank, uh, since launching in 2008, has released reports arguing for a harder diplomatic approach toward China and increased military sales to East Asian states with which China has geopolitical disputes. Reports published by Project 2049 argue for selling more U.S. weapons to Taiwan and to Japan, warn about China's military capabilities, and criticize China's human rights record. So I think you can already connect the dots. There is an effort here to sell weapons to other countries under this guise of China is a threat, you need to protect yourselves, so militarize, 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 buy weapons from these defense contractors. Um, So who is this think tank funded by? The site lists among its funders several major defense contractors such as Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman, as well as branches of East Asian governments such as the Embassy of Japan and the Taiwan Ministry of Defense. Now, uh, before leaving Trump's White House, Steve Bannon, one of his top advisors, said this. This is what he uttered at the time. I'm changing out people at East Asian defense. I'm getting hawks in. And that he did. In fact, uh, here's the square-jawed China hawk he was talking about. His name is (laughs) Randall Shriver. Okay. And he's uh, also the founder of Project 2049. Okay. So he now has an important role within the defense, uh, uh, within the State Department. He's the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Indo-Pacific Security Affairs. So um, the bulk of U.S. tensions with China have been manufactured by think tanks like uh, Project 2049 that, again, rely on funding from defense contractors who want to sell weapons. And one of the easiest ways for them to do that is, again, to sell weapons to countries like Japan, like India, um, again, under this uh, guise of, well, China is a threat to them. So they need to arm up as much as humanly possible. So researchers Holly Zhang and Cassandra Stimson um, looked a little closer at how money flows into these think tanks and how that cash influences U.S. foreign policy. And it's really important to understand this. So they gave specific examples. And one of those specific examples is the Carnegie Endowment Study. And uh, they did this one study called Bolstering the Alliance Amid China's Military Resurgence, and it's filled with warnings about China's growing military power. Never mind that, in 2019, the United States spent nearly triple that what China did on its military. Like so many similarly funded projects inside the Beltway, this one recommended further growth in military cooperation between the United States and Japan. Important as well, it claimed was developing the capability to wage combined multi-domain joint operations, which would require accelerating operational response times to enhance power. All of this, all this mumbo jumbo is, let's militarize the region. (laughs) That's it. That's all it is. It's, It's very simple to understand. Now, okay, how is the Carnegie Foundation funded? Like, who funded this study? 
The Carnegie Foundation has taken in at least $825,000 from Japan and approximately the same amount from defense contractors and U.S. government sources over the past six years. Carnegie's recommendations recently came to fruition when the Trump administration announced the second largest sale of U.S. weaponry to Japan worth more than $23 billion. Um, It's just it's unbelievable. And when you take a step back and you look at the bigger picture, when you look at, you know, just how much money we're talking about and how that translates into influence, how that translates into foreign policy toward not just Asia, but the Middle East, everything that we get involved in internationally. You understand the scope of this corruption, of this bribery, of this influence of foreign money. And uh, and here's a little bit more from the report that I was referring to. Um, so the top 50 think tanks have received more than $1 billion from the U.S. government and defense contractors over the last six years. Such contractors alone lobby Congress to the tune of more than $20 million each election cycle. And then you got to think about that foreign money as well. Combine such sums with Japanese funding, not to speak of the money spent by other governments that desire policy influence in Washington. And you have a confluence of interests that propels U.S. military expenditures and the sale of weapons globally on a mind-boggling sale. Homeboys just want to sell weapons, guys. That's all this is. And in the meantime, we hear all this scary rhetoric about the, you know, uh, about the Chinese government, about what what they're going to do with communism in the United States, just absolute madness and nonsense. And so the end result is militarizing that region, which destabilizes it. There's no question. And we have such a gross history of doing this already. And we've seen what the ramifications are. Um, and politically speaking, though, Americans end up with two parties that are essentially identical when it comes to questions of foreign policy. If you don't believe me, all you need to do is go back to very recent history and take a look at the type of campaign ads that came from both the Trump campaign and the Biden campaign. Let's start off with the Trump campaign. For 47 years, the D.C. elite has made one country great. Joe Biden has led the charge. I believed in 1979 and said so, and I believe now that a rising China is a positive development. China stole American manufacturing and hoarded our emergency stockpile. We're not trying to slow down Chinese growth. Now more than ever, America must stop China. And to stop China, you have to stop Joe Biden. America First Action is responsible for the content of this advertising. So Biden's reaction to that ad was, no, no, I'm more hawkish on China. I promise I'm going to be even more strong on China. This is what his ad looked like. Let's talk about President Trump, China, and the coronavirus, and how President Trump failed to hold China to account when it mattered most. Barack Obama and Joe Biden put in place extra safeguards to predict, prevent, and deal with pandemics, especially those originating in China. We kept a strong CDC presence on the ground there. We even had an American expert stationed in the Chinese Disease Control Agency to be our eyes and our ears. President Trump dismantled or diminished virtually all of it. He closed the White House pandemic office. He cut the number of CDC experts in China from 47 to 14. He left that key position that was our eyes and ears vacant in the months before the outbreak. In early January, after the outbreak started, the CDC wanted to get into China to get information to protect Americans. China said no, and President Trump didn't push. 
So, you know, if Biden's elected, he'll spy on China more. <laughs> so, it, you know, we, we heard all sorts of anti-China rhetoric um, throughout the campaign. And my guess is we're going to continue hearing um, this rhetoric in the Biden administration. Because, again, when you look at the heart of this issue, when you look at the actual influencing factors that lead to the foreign policy decisions that both Democratic and Republican um, administrations make, you can see that that influence is going to impact them, that money is going to impact them much the same. That's why, you know, Obama came into office and he not only continued the Bush era foreign policy that we absolutely despise, he expanded it. He absolutely expanded it. And so when Obama comes out with his third memoir and he tries to compare Lula da Silva who lifted 10 million, tens of millions of people out of poverty to Tammany Hall, a corrupt democratic organization. All I can say is, let's take a look at who was funding you and who was lobbying you when you were making your decision to pivot to Asia. That's what I got for you. Yeah. Damn. That was, uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, uh, it's interesting to me. I mean, I, I, I used to live in China. I lived in China for a year. Uh, I lived in Shanghai back in 2008. And um, so, uh, so it's it's a fascinating country for, for many, many reasons. But the the dynamic of, that we're seeing in the United States in the last several years in which we're kind of seeing a um, increase in the hawkish rhetoric toward China, like a sort of the beginnings of a new Cold War with China, we're kind of in unprecedented territory because unlike the Soviet Union, um, the first, the original Cold War, the United States did not need access to the Soviet Union's market. You know, the, the, the United States was fine just like letting the Soviet Union kind of control its own internal market. Whereas the United States ruling class absolutely needs the Chinese market. I mean, that's why you see things like, you know, the NBA like, and Hollywood would collapse without the Chinese market. Um, Bloomberg would collapse without the Chinese market. That's why Bloomberg, uh, Mike Bloomberg, like, when he's interviewed about China, he always has nice things to say about Xi Jinping, all that stuff. So there is kind of a a divide in the ruling class in the United States with regards to China. And it really depends on, am I competing with China for technology or do I need access to Chinese markets? I mean, that's essentially right. what it is, right? And you can just track that perfectly. Um, but it does seem like the sort of China hawks are going to ultimately win that battle and we're going to see a new cold war with china and it's just so disastrous because like say what you will about the chinese communist party and the human rights abuses or whatever i mean not coming from an american especially like someone like mike pompeo where you know half know. a million people sleep on, sleep on the streets in america we have 2.3 million people in our prison system which is just an absolutely moral abomination the way it's the way they're treated like come on like the moralizing around human rights, like I can't, I can't, I, I couldn't have less of patience for coming from the United States. So, um, but really, at the end of the day, what really, really matters is that the United States and China need to cooperate if we're going to have a prayer of survival on this planet. These are the two number yeah. one polluters in the world. Um, it's going to be like that forever. China, you know, it's it, China as it as it kind of um, economically grows and it's and it's sort of standard of living grows. Its carbon footprint is going to grow. It's still not as big as the United States in terms of um, carbon p- footprint per per capita, but 
you know, if there's competition between the United States or, or, and China or worse, conflict between the United States and China, uh, the climate change, like no matter what we do, like goodbye, see you later, we're toast, you know. Um, this story, so- I, I love that you brought that up because this story, it, it was hard to to write this segment because you can go off on so many different um, angles or tangents in, in this topic, yeah. right. In like the broader umbrella of us, China relations, um, because there is an economic component to it that's worth exploring. And I know, um, in one of the earlier episodes of this show, uh, uh Michael Brooks did look into that and I, and I thought he did such a fantastic job. You know, there's the think tank angle, there's the ramifications for the American people, of course, and that, um, involves climate change. Um, of course, that's going to impact the entire world. But, you know, it's 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 just such a layered, nuanced story, and it's so fascinating. And what yeah. drives me crazy right now is this is the future. Like, this is the future issue that we need to be pretty focused on, if you ask me. And the news cycle is just nonstop. I can't stand it. It's nonstop, like, oh, here's yeah. a circus. Let's Let's watch the circus. Okay, but the circus is distracting us from this major issue that's going to impact every facet of our lives, including the environment. So, yeah. And and the the what you what you touched on the think tank issue. I mean, it's one of the more under discussed issues in America on the left as well. You know, the 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 power that think tanks have. I mean, the the history is kind of interesting. Like in the in the '90s, when Newt Gingrich when Newt Gingrich kind of took over Congress, he, one of his like big kind of moves was to defund the budget of Congress. Not like the budget of the United States, like the like the budget that Congress people get to operate and. What they did was they basically had to fire all of their policy staff, you know, because they couldn't afford it. Like they just, you know, mm-hmm. you, you literally just didn't have this, the funding to, to have policy people to help you write legislation. You know, I'm sorry, but like the Congress people aren't there writing legislation themselves. They have staff yeah, of course. who do it. Um, so when they reduced that budget dramatically, basically what was left for these Congress people was just comm staff. They just had PR people to like help with their image. It was like the bare minimum that they could that they could sustain. So basically they outsourced all legislative writing to think tanks, which are funded by corporations and billionaires oh. and foreign governments, as we see. So it's basically like opening up the U.S. government for business. Like, OK, who you got? You know, like um, that's why you see like all manner. I mean, the, the amount of Gulf money that is sloshing around D.C. think tanks is like just absolutely mind boggling, obviously, from all countries that want to lobby the United States for anything like we focus a lot of, on, on lobbying, but we fo- we focus not enough on think tanks like you know, a, a, a decent reform that a Democratic, you know, Congress or Senate could enact like tomorrow is to just like triple or quadruple the size of Congress's budget so that, you know, someone like AOC or whomever can hire uh, like a staff of people to like actually help them analyze and write legislation. I mean, this is why the work of the of Matt Brunig's People Policy Project is so is so important is because he he kind of does that role for for kind of left and progressive people in government. He, he like helps them write legislation because he's just so prolific. But, you know, it would be much better if 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 Congress people themselves had the ability to do it. And and you just see like how think tanks just basically control policy because they can write legislation. The, the Congress people just do not have the means to do it. And it's and you see how like how pernicious that influence is that it just it's basically like, all right, 
you know, government for sale as, you know, it's just so another sick. element of it in the United States. It's gross. It's so sick. Yeah. And like, as I, you know, as I was researching this again, I couldn't help but think about Obama's accusations against Lula. And it's like, are you pretending like you're not <sighs> a corrupt politician? Like, are you serious? But we'll talk about that in more detail for our yes, salt Barack segment. Obama, like, just is just a dis- like disgust me on a level that it, like I like ugh. like his post presidency is going to be one of the worst uh, we've seen. But anyway, um, should I go? Should I go ahead and get? Some yeah. Wine? Yeah. We did some foreign policy. Now let's talk a little domestic policy. Yes, Anna, because I know you hate talking about the election, but we just got off the most important election of our lifetime, they told us. But the problem is that now we are into the next most important election of our lifetime, the twin special elections in Georgia, which will determine control of the Senate. And therefore, the fate of the universe hangs in the balance. So there isn't a moment to rest because remember, this is the most important election of our lifetime. You see, the thinking goes that unless Democrats retake control of the Senate, Mitch McConnell is going to block the entirety of Joe Biden's legislative agenda, just like he did to Barack Obama. But Let's be honest, those Senate races in Georgia are going to be tough. And even if the Democrats somehow managed to pull it off, it would still mean that the balance of power would lie in Joe Manchin's hands. And he's basically indistinguishable from a Republican these days. So that means that the only real hope is that an administration can implement reforms that essentially bypass Congress. And thanks to the good work of people like David Dane at the American Prospect, some of those policy proposals are now at the forefront of the discourse, and the most talked about proposal involves student debt. Well, Democratic senators are calling on the White House to cancel federal student loan debt. Senator Elizabeth Warren and Chuck Schumer are introducing a proposal calling on the cancellation of $50,000 in student loan debt for 43 million borrowers. That's right. A Joe Biden administration could, in theory, cancel up to 95% of student debt and even bum-ass Chuck Schumer is in favor of it? A reminder, a reminder that the total student debt burden is currently $1.65 trillion. But yeah, as crazy as that sounds, it is possible to simply cancel it under existing law. According to Luke Harin, a PhD student in law at Yale, I heard that's one of the good ones, uh, it lies with an obscure statute dating back to the Eisenhower presidency known as Compromise and Settlement Authority. This this authority was granted to the Department of Education first in 1958 and then codified further in the Higher Education Act of 1965. Compromise and Settlement gives the Education Department this explicit authority, Harine writes. ED has absolute discretion to determine when to stop collections, when to collect less than the full amount, and when to release debtors' claims in toto. So this has unleashed a wave of discourse and this is one era, area where there are some disagreements on the left. Some people say that not so fast. Canceling student debt is not that redistributive at the end of the day. It really disproportionately affects professional managerial class types such as doctors and lawyers and the like. And there is some truth to that. If you look at student debt by income, the fourth and fifth highest quintile of earners have well over 50% of the total student debt burden. And this makes intuitive sense because the more degrees you have, the higher your income, but each degree is expensive. So if you went to med school or law school, you'll be making more money than if you got a bachelor's degree, but those degrees are more expensive. So you have a bigger debt burden. But if you look at data by wealth instead of income, a different picture emerges. 
the lowest quintile of wealth holds 55% of student debt. And again, this too makes sense. Wealth just means assets minus liabilities. So if you have a giant liability like student debt, well, then you have low wealth. So the opponents of student of debt cancellation say that this is just a windfall for people that are doing okay and not people who are truly poor. And that's true in a sense. I would prefer to tax billionaires at 100% and pass Medicare for all and give the poorest Americans a big fat check. That would be better. But those things, unfortunately, require Congress. And right now, the political conditions are not there to pass those kinds of things. But student debt cancellation is a reform that is available right now. And it would help people who are struggling. And not to sound like a right winger, but it would also unleash human potential in a degree that we just can't really even imagine. You see, these days, the economy has been structured so that good degrees mean a good job and high income. And that is one of the pernicious aspects of student debt is that it drives young people uh, that may otherwise be doing good work that benefits society to more high paid jobs like, say, investment banking or being a corporate lawyer for ExxonMobil that destroys society. It really has put a gun to a whole generation's head. I mean, take this high paying but evil corporate job and get in line or the debt will crush you. And the student debt crisis has gotten so, so large that it doesn't even just affect young people anymore. I can't afford to retire. Uh, I could never make the payments. Payments for student loans she took out for her son, Andrew, about a decade ago. She pays around $500 a month on the nearly $75,000 she owes on loans she took out and others she co-signed with her son. By her math, she'll probably be paying on her loans alone for another 11 years. Even if I started drawing on my retirement and Social Security together, I still wouldn't have enough monthly to make those payments. It's certainly... um, Not where I hope to be at this stage in life. The number of Americans age 60 and older with student loan debt quadrupled between 2005 and 2015 to nearly 3 million. And the average amount they owe has nearly doubled from about $12,000 to almost 24,000. Thanks in large part to Joe Biden, who, despite his protestations, wrote the bankruptcy bill of 2005. Student debt cannot be discharged in bankruptcy. It's one of the only forms of debt that cannot be discharged in bankruptcy, which means that if you default on your payments, you can get your wages garnished. And studies show that about one in four borrowers default on their student loans. And what's even more sinister is that the government can even garnish your Social Security Retired and disabled Americans with outstanding student debt are increasingly seeing their Social Security checks garnished by the federal government in an attempt to recover millions in unpaid student loans. And this is leaving thousands of people over the age of 50 with below poverty incomes, according to a new report out Tuesday. And beyond the relief that it would provide to people in terms of their balance sheets, the Biden administration will need to find some way to inject some economic stimulus into the economy that is still basically on life support because of the pandemic. And I, I, I don't know about you guys, but I find I'm skeptical that Mitch McConnell would help Joe Biden pass a big stimulus package in the Senate. And as Zach Carter points out, the median student loan payment is $222 a month. That's 45 million people with an extra $222 to spend every month. So that means it would be economically stimulating. But beyond that, a grand sweeping move like canceling over a trillion dollars worth of debt is the kind of thing that the government just hasn't done in a very long time. 
It's the kind of simple, understandable thing that politicians can run on. Most Americans have more or less accepted that the government is unwilling or unable to do anything really meaningful to help their lot in life. A giant student debt jubilee could help raise people's expectations. Of course, canceling the current student debt does nothing to fix the problems with higher education, especially the ever-spiraling costs. But that's as much an argument against canceling student debt as Hillary Clinton's famous line that breaking up the banks won't end racism. Doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. And it may create the political terrain for further reforms. Student debt kind of crept up on us in the mid-aughts. It was like a new thing at the time, really. But I suspect that with a big, splashy jubilee, people will not tolerate it again in the 2020s. Now, even though the Joe Biden administration can cancel student debt, it doesn't mean it will, Biden's instincts will be to cut a deal with Congress. He, evident, he evidently believes that he can work with his former colleague, Mitch McConnell. And according to NPR, Biden is calling for exactly that. In answer to a question at a Monday press conference, Biden repeated his support for a provision passed as part of the HEROES Act, which the Democratic-controlled House updated on October 1st. The provision calls for the federal government to pay off up to $10,000 in private, non-federal student loans for <laughs> economically distressed borrowers. So, in other words, uh, mean-tested, half-measure, gobbledygook that is just peak Democrat brain. The Democrats, of course, would like nothing more than to use McConnell and an intransigent Congress as an excuse for not doing anything. But the presidency has broad powers. They can do a lot. From ending the war in Yemen to using the Postal Service as a public bank, the left should agitate for the executive to do as much as it can, including wiping out over $1 trillion in student debt. The means testing and the like tiny, tiny amount that um, Biden would be willing to forgive is just it's such a slap in the face. And what I don't understand is like what's stopping him? Like what's stopping Democratic lawmakers from pursuing a policy that would be like deeply popular? I mean, this impacts so many people. And it negatively impacts our economic situation, as you perfectly described. So I just, I don't understand. Well, uh, you know, I mean. Is it the I, interest no that the federal government is making on these loans? Like, is that what it is? Like, I don't, I, Why don't they just forgive it? Yeah, I don't. It's it's not that. It's, it's not like student debt. Like student debt is held by the government, um, the vast majority of it. It's not like there's like some bank, you know, that is making, you know what I mean? I mean, there is a, there is. Tons of corporations that are making money off of student debt, like the people who like service these loans and all this. Like there is, there are some corporate interests behind it, although the actual debt is held by the government. But I mean, it's just, it's just a, it's just beyond the sort of um, corruption, the naked corruption that exists within the Democratic Party. Uh, beyond that, there is also something deeper going on with them, in which they've just interiorized so much of this ideology of like, yeah, means testing, half measures, using the market uh, to fix problems. Like the, it, there is kind of, as well as like a, a sort of uh, a, a naked corruption, there is an ideological core to a lot of these people. They do really believe all this stuff. And Biden himself, like just from a temperament standpoint, just isn't going to rock the boat. Like he's never been that kind of guy, you know, and, and, mm -hmm. and going around Congress. I mean, it, you know, like not really going around them, but like doing something big without Congress, just from a from a temperament standpoint, it's just something that it, his instincts, everything in his body will be telling him that's wrong. It's wrong to do it. 
you know, especially for someone who was in the Senate for so long, which is just kind of this weird buddy-buddy club. I mean, people don't understand, like, the, the, the workings, the, inter- the interior workings of the Senate are very strange. And there's this kind of, like, weird collegial um, yeah. thing going on. It's it's very bizarre. And so, like, that's It's that's super counterproductive. Biden. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's absurd. I mean, it's absurd given, like, the facts on the ground um, and given, like, the way McConnell has tr- transformed the Senate in his leadership. Um, so yeah, it's, I don't know. Well, when I, I, I'm when not holding thing, my breath. No, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously not either. Um, uh, but that doesn't mean that, um, you shouldn't keep fighting. And I've noticed, yeah. I don't know. One of the reasons why Schumer, um, seems to be more supportive of, you know, policies like canceling student loan debt or, you know, FDR style economic, uh, policies is because he's terrified that he's going to be primaried by oh, AOC. Yeah. And so AOC has been like a stone in his shoe and in the, um, you know, uh, moderate Democrat shoes for a while. But I feel like, and I don't know how long it's going to last. I hope for a while or I hope it's permanent. But following the election, I mean, it it took, what, half a day for Democrats to immediately turn around and start like trash talking um, progressives like AOC. And she hit back and she continues to hit back. And I'm... And it's not just her. Um, for instance, Biden has already named um, some pretty terrible people uh, with close ties to the fossil fuel industry um, into his cabinet. And in response to that, you have people like Cory Bush showing up to the DNC headquarters uh, to protest, right? Yeah. And so I want I want more of that. Um, yeah. I want them to hold uh, these politicians accountable as much as they possibly can. Um, but it's just amazing how Democrats still don't get it. Like they completely abandon Americans on various issues, whether it's student loan debt, increasing the minimum wage, all of the issues that actually matter to people, issues that would make them like wildly popular with the electorate. They just abandon those issues, abandon the American people. And then they turn around and blame like slogans for political movements. Like grow up. I mean, Listen, Jamel Bowie had an article in the New York Times this week where he basically talked about, you know, all the all the sort of uh, sort of post-election takes about why Republicans did surprisingly well, why Trump did surprisingly well, given, you know, all the evidence that was that was being told to us that, you know, he was just going to be super weak. And um, and it's just like it's it's the stimulus. It's, you know, like he put checks in people's hands. He. You know, this was a huge poverty reduction program. You know, like at the end of the day, the CARES Act did do that. Um, you know, the, the $600 in unemployment insurance a month plus a $1,200 check with his name on it, you know, did mm-hmm. affect people's bottom line. And that probably had a very, very meaningful effect on the election. Just like Janet Yellen increasing rate hikes, uh, in- increasing the interest rates at the Fed right before the 2016 election maybe had an effect on getting Trump elected. So, uh, you know, these kind of big economic things, like 45 million people who have student debt, if just the Democrats would to do that and just get, okay, it's gone, and then just be like, remember that? I did that. I did that for you. You know, like that's how you win elections. You put money in people's pocket, you help them the bottom line, and then you keep on reminding them forever and ever and ever. It's how Obama won the 2012 election when he reminded people in the Rust Belt that he saved the auto industry, which he did. You know, like, I mean, we would have done it differently. Maybe we should have nationalized GM or something, but he did save those jobs that would have been wiped out overnight. Um, And he ran on that and he won. 
So it's just, it, 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 you know, the Democrats just, they don't do that stuff anymore. They just don't do it. They don't do it. And it's because it's a combination of ideology and material interests. And those two things tend to have a funny uh, habit of just kind of coinciding perfectly. So, yeah. Well, I think the perfect person to discuss that um, with us is Julia Salazar, who is the uh, state senator um, of New York. Julia, thank you so much for coming back uh, and speaking with us today. Thank you so much for, for having me back again. Good to see you both. Good to see you. Um, so I don't know how much of the conversation we were just having um, was something you could hear, but I, I really want to get your take on it. So, um, Julia, there's like this ongoing ridiculous debate among uh, members of the Democratic Party regarding what why they lost when it came to the House. And they, of course, failed to take control of the Senate. Um, now, of course, the moderates are arguing that it's because of defund the police and because of socialism. Um, but, you know, the New York DSA has certainly seen a lot of success running on policy proposals that uh, moderate Democrats claim would just destroy them. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what we've seen play out in, in this election is an overall strategy among establishment Democrats that says that capitulating to a right-wing political agenda, seeking to appear moderate rather than actually trying to persuade more right-wing voters is the best way to capture the largest base and to have broader appeal. But we know that that strategy is losing. Democrats in, in Congress and in the U.S. Senate who unequivocally supported transformative policies championed by the left, such as Medicare for All, um, abolishing or uh, forgiving student loan debt, um, won their elections, even in marginal districts and swing districts across the country. And meanwhile, grassroots electoral organizing and, and socialist organizing was also victorious in elections across the country. We saw it here in New York uh, in, in my own reelection. But more importantly, there will now be five DSA endorsed socialist legislators in the state legislature. And at the national level, more than 75% of the candidates who were endorsed by the Democratic Socialists of America won their elections, not just those of us in left-leaning districts like in Brooklyn and Queens. And that matters because it isn't just about counting victories. It's, of course, about this, this overall strategy and what it's going to take to, to actually create change that will meaningfully impact people's lives. And that's change that is really urgent, even more so after um, having to endure four years of uh, Trump administration policies. Yeah. And Julia, I want to, I want to ask you about Andrew Cuomo because I find him to be an incredibly repellent, grotesque figure. Although a bunch of liberals like think he's Bay now, like they're Cuomo sexuals. Uh, they think he's oh hot. God. Uh, they're turned on by his press conferences. The Emmys are going to give him an Emmy for his freaking press conferences around the coronavirus. He wrote a book about his, leadership during the coronavirus and is literally profiting off of it. Um, and, but what, where does his power really come from and what can you and the rest of the uh, DSA endorsed, uh, you know, members of the state, uh, state government uh, do to check his power or to, I don't know, like do something about Andrew Cuomo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so governor Cuomo, he's, he's a bully. Uh, the way that, 
he operates and the way that he maintains his power is uh, by by trying to make people politically or otherwise dependent on him. Um, in, and of course, there also is the element of in, in New York State, constitutionally, our governor has uh, enormous power, most of the vast majority of the power realistically in the state budget process. Um, so there are some things that we can do about that. One is we really need uh, what we've been calling budget justice um, and to pass something called the Budget Equity Act in New York State to uh, give more power to uh, more equal power really to the legislature um, so that the budget process will be more democratic. Uh, this is especially important when you have a governor. It's important with any governor really, uh, but but when you have a governor like Governor Cuomo, who for the years he's been in office um, and he's about to become, you know, the, the potentially the longest serving governor in, in the state's history, um, for as long as he's been in office, he has been committed to austerity, um, to, to cuts, to uh, imposing a, a cap needlessly on increased spending, um, even while refusing to tax the very wealthy. Um, and, and so we really need budget justice um, and, and to fundamentally change the budget process and be willing to, as, as legislature, now with more socialists coming in um, and, and more progressives who were recently elected in both chambers coming into uh, the state legislature, we need to be uh, showing the courage to stand up to the governor. Um, and, and now it's likely we, we don't have still the final results of some of the state Senate elections that, were, that are really close in New York, but we do know um, that we'll have at least 41 Democrats in the state Senate, it's a larger majority than we have before. And it's very likely that we will have a supermajority in both houses of the legislature, which would allow us, uh, of course, to, to override vetoes um, from the governor. And, and so what we need to be doing as socialists and progressives is demanding that um, legislators use their power to stand up to the governor because, of course, the governor is not um, going to suddenly become friendly to our agenda on his own. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right about that. And um, one thing that I, I want to go back to is just how the New York chapter of DSA um, strategizes in in helping to not only endorse specific candidates, I think that process of endorsement is important to get into, um, but also how they organize around these candidates and volunteer uh, to get them elected. Because I think it could be a lesson, um, you know, for uh, volunteers throughout the country who want to get uh, socialist candidates um, elected into local office. So can you start with the uh, DSA's um, uh, endorsement process because it's not simple. It's actually a pretty uh, rigorous process. Yeah. So in, in every chapter um, has some differences, but in New York City DSA, I think we're still the, the largest DSA chapter in the country. Um, the process is that initially um, the the chapter or, or rather the local um, electoral working groups in in each borough in each uh, for respective branches receive um, questionnaires from potential candidates. Um, also, the chapter is constantly uh, doing leadership development and seeking um, to encourage socialists who have already demonstrated a commitment to our movement to run for office. So there is candidate rec recruitment as well. 
Um, but it's a rigorous process for candidates. So it's a it's a long questionnaire, and then the candidates must first go to their local uh, DSA electoral working group. Um, after the and and if the electoral working group um, recommends them for endorsement, they then go to their their local branch and seek support from the branch, and then finally. They go to our um, our chapter's political leadership body, the the citywide um, leadership committee, um, which which makes the final decision about endorsement. So it's a very democratic process, um, and it's one that really seeks to include as as much as possible all of the the members in, in the chapter, even in a chapter as large as ours, which I think has like twelve thousand members at this point. Um, so, so it's a pretty rigorous process, and, and what's really most important, I think, about it is, um, or, or why it's so rigorous, is because it's a commitment to uh, to, to do the field work to get someone elected without the the resources of accepting corporate PAC money or real estate money, which of course has an enormous influence in, in New York State politics. Um, without that dirty money. Uh, it's all the more important that we have organized people power to support our candidates and our campaigns. Um, and, and so that's really what what DSA is committing to when they make an endorsement rather than just a, a sort of stamp endorsement. Yeah, the endorsement is just by its very nature an incredibly democratic process. And, you know, you don't really see that with other um, organizations. But um, Nando, did you want to jump in? No, I, I, I think this is like a, a very important thing for people to understand this, this, um, you know, because we don't really have political organ like political parties in the United States the way we we typically understand them. We don't have political organizations, or at least not as many, um, or, or as kind of robust in, as we we might have in other countries. Just like what? So the endorsement. So say you get endorsed by DSA, then uh, what happens? And then say you get endorsed by DSA, and then you win, and then you be, and then you you know you turn into a neoliberal shill. What happens then? More importantly, because like th- that's disciplining politicians to, uh, like yourself, to sort of maintain the party line is 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 an important part of the process. Um, accountability is absolutely critical, and um, what we're seeking to create, and obviously it's it's somewhat new because um, the DSA has not for very long had. Um, DSA members who are actually in elected office or DSA endorsed candidates, right? Um, the Senator Bernie Sanders, of course, um, both as a U.S. Senator, but also as a presidential candidate has had DSA support. Um, my, myself, uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, um, and, and now many dozens actually of candidates across the country who won their elections. The question is um, about co-governance. So um, for, for me, Personally, um, on a weekly basis, myself and, and now the newly elected legislators in, um, endorsed by our DSA chapter are meeting with um, a committee of members in the chapter every week um, to, to talk about policy, to strategize, to talk about internal organizing in the legislature and how we're actually going to achieve the agenda that we run on and that our, our members support. Um, that sort of it really is just about regular accountability and communication, um, and and it does underscore the importance of 
us not taking corporate money or taking funds from private interests um, because you know if, if we did then then our our um, accountability who we are accountable to would be divided and it would be compromised um, rather than us just being accountable to the people and to the working class um, so so it's all the more important that we maintain that commitment and that any future endorsed candidates uh, also commit to um, trying to get corporate greed and corporate dollars uh, out of out of politics and and starting with ourselves. Yeah, and every once in a while, um, the corporate greed uh, loses the friendly uh, facade. And we certainly got a little sense of that uh, from Governor Cuomo this week when he became hostile toward uh, reporters who were just asking simple questions. And I don't know, maybe I'm going too far, but this I feel like his response was very Trump-esque. Let's watch and you, yeah, you guys can judge for yourselves. For over a month, it always said if by the state's numbers you hit three percent the schools close what's going on here is nothing that the law hasn't said for over a month we then had the test out procedures if you were paying attention you would have known we closed the schools in new york city two weeks ago Remember when we did an orange zone and a red zone in Brooklyn and Queens and we closed the schools? Don't you remember that? Okay, so don't you, so what are you talking about? How, what are you talking about? You're now going to override. We did it already. That's the law, an orange zone and a red zone. Follow the facts. I'm still confused. Well, then you're confused. I'm confused. And then I'll tell you what you mean. Parents are still confused as well. The schools oh, they're not confused. Tomorrow. You're confused. No, I think but parents are law. confused as well. Read the law and you won't be confused. This is Emmy Gold right there. I'm not joking. The Emmys are going to give him an Emmy for, for, for his press conferences, for like shit like that. They're going to give him an Emmy. You know, no, it's quite, it's, it's insane because uh, all look, all he needed to do was show up for press conferences. Like that's literally all he needed to do. The bar is set so low that that's all it yeah. took. But if you look at like the substance of his response to this pandemic, I mean, Julia, you mentioned the austerity. I mean, the fact that he was willing to cut funding to healthcare in the middle of a pandemic, in the beginning of the pandemic. And he's like going around talking about how fantastic he's been in response to this. It's, it's, can you elaborate on that a little more for people yeah. who don't live in New York, who don't necessarily know how awful he's been? Absolutely. And it's important that they do know um, what Governor Cuomo has actually been doing, what they don't see in the press conferences, because people have been watching the governor all over the country. I talked to my family um, in, in another state and and they'll say, oh, you know, the governor, the governor of New York seems to be doing a great job is what they were saying in the spring. And, and they would tune into his press conferences, uh, knowing that, of, of course, uh, the pandemic was really severe here. And that's what people forget is that, um, the, you know, 
the governor and the mayor of New York City as well, both were were relatively slow to take the action that was absolutely urgently needed in order to prevent literally hundreds of thousands of deaths in our state. Even now, um, the the death toll in New York State compared to to every other state in the country, it just doesn't even compare. I think it's it's double um, the the state with the next highest number of people who died from the virus. Um, and, and so that is not um, a, um, uh, that doesn't demonstrate that he has successfully managed this pandemic, but he is a bully and he presents confidently in his press conferences. Um, I, I really don't know why uh, they felt that he deserved an Emmy for his performance, but I think that it does <laughs> it does sort of demonstrate that it is a performance, right? So in, in that regard, maybe an Emmy is appropriate. Um, the governor performs as though, uh, you know, he is fearlessly leading our state. And then meanwhile is proposing Medicaid cuts, as you said, in, in the, the middle of the pandemic that we as the legislature had to fight uh, that would have been devastating for our safety net hospitals, our public hospitals that rely the most on those funds. And this isn't a time when we should be increasing the Medicaid reimbursement rate at the state level, when we should be dedicating more. And, you know, that's that's really what we should be learning from this pandemic. Um, but I don't think that he mentions that in his book, which he, he also, you know, at the same time, um, had the audacity to write a book about, you know, how he successfully uh, managed a pandemic before the pandemic even, before there was even a second wave that we're now seeing um, in, in New York State. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's just appalling. Um, and and the context, you know, is, is that um, he has been committed to policies like this, to austerity, for for years, and um, there now is a popular movement in our state to try to pass a series of revenue proposals taxing the very wealthy. Our state has more billionaires than any other state in the country, um, and and they're not paying their fair share of taxes, of course, and and they're Governor Cuomo's friends, so he's resistant to these proposals to in increase taxes on the wealthy um, in order to pay for uh, the social programs that our state really needs to survive. Um, and, and in order to, to survive, especially during a pandemic, when we are asking people to stay home um, and when many people really can't continue to safely work. Um, and so, so it, you know, <laughs> the fact that he has been lauded by some as handling this pandemic uh, skillfully um, is just not the reality that those of us see in New York who who follow his his policy proposals and his agenda. I want to ask about that that what you just mentioned this this proposal to tax the rich. I mean, obviously, um, taxing the rich is something that governments have struggled to do uh, throughout the Western world. Uh, I find it kind of uh, fascinating that at the heart of like global capital, you know, New York City, you know, Wall Street, there is also this kind of emerging DSA caucus within the state government. What, 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 like, what are the challenges that exist to taxing the rich and assuming that you do uh, manage to extract some money from them, 
Um, what are the top priorities uh, that you would have for uh, you know distributing it? Yeah, I think in this moment um, we need to make sure that everyone. Um, when we're saying that people should shelter in place, we have to make sure that people have shelter. Um, there are tens of thousands of people who are experiencing homelessness in New York City alone, um, and and it doesn't need to be that way. We have the resources to make sure, um, and in fact, it's actually more cost effective over time um, to to implement a homes guarantee to actually provide housing or a housing first model. Um, for people who are, for, for everyone, for, but particularly for people who are experiencing homelessness, um, we need to, what, what's been referred to as canceling rent. Um, I'm the lead sponsor of a bill in the state Senate that would forgive rents and um, also mortgages for people who have lost income due to the pandemic. Um, it actually uh, you know, earlier you spoke about the the curse of, of means testing um, and and why it's bad public policy. Um, and so so we need legislation like this, policy like this that says, you know what, uh, the impact has been so rampant and severe in our state. Um, people not being, you know, losing their jobs, not being able to pay their rent that we need to universally forgive rent and then, um, you know, start from the people who need it most um, and provide relief for property owners who who actually can demonstrate that um, they've lost rental income and, and they need that to pay their mortgage, um, et cetera. And so to me, that's that's the top priority. But there there's so much more. Uh, we just received notice from the, the MTA, the MTA's dra- a, a new proposed budget, their draft budget. Um, that would amount to a 40% reduction in service um, in our public transportation system, which which you know, is already overburdened. Um, that's terrifying, right? If you rely on the MTA, um, if you rely on, on the New York City subway to get around, um, we need to robustly fund our public transit system, um, our public housing that has been neglected for many years by the federal government. Um, there, there's a long list of, of things that we that we want to do and that we can do if we just implement economic justice and we tax the rich. Um, so final question for me is, you know, tactically speaking, um, it, it's important to increase the number of um, local lawmakers, socialist local lawmakers endorsed by the DSA, um, people who have a commitment to the people of, of New York. And so... Um, what can we do now in order to kind of prepare for a gubernatorial challenge to Cuomo? Um, is, is there anything that the DSA is focusing on right now? Um, is there anything that, um, you know, our audience can support uh, moving forward? Is there a plan in place? As far as I know, there isn't um, like a concrete plan in, in place, um, but our electoral working groups in New York are constantly um, seeking to identify potential candidates. Um, and as, as we have been, as our members have been participating in campaigns, like my own campaign, like those of the, the successful campaigns of DSA candidates, they're gaining the skills that are required to run a larger campaign, such as a, a statewide campaign for governor. But that really is, it's um, something that we haven't tried to do yet. Um, the DSA did endorse Cynthia Nixon's campaign for governor, but 
Um, she, you know, of course, she, she wasn't recruited by the DSA. Um, uh, I think that, uh, and she has been uh, just remarkably supportive and helpful to DSA endorsed candidates since then. Um, she, she really, she's a real one, <laughs> you know. Um, she, she really stuck around after running. Um, we need people who are clearly committed to this movement, who will be accountable, but also um, I think we need to continue over the next two years because the governor Cuomo will be running for election in a re-election in 2022. Over the next two years, we need to be um, expanding and developing the capacity to run a statewide campaign, since it's it is uh, unlike any campaign that that we've run yet, um, actually in, in any state in in, um, in in the country. All right, uh, Julia Salazar, a state senator from New York. Um, thank you again for taking the time to speak with us, give us some insight on what's happening in your state, and thank you for continuing to fight for the people. Thank you. Thank you both so much. Um, Oye, la, la, la próxima vez en español lo hacemos. Ok, ok. <laughs> toda, la, toda la entrevista la hacemos en español. <laughs> you insist. <laughs> Next time. Yeah. All right. Thank you. All right. Um, that was better than Better Work for sure, Nando. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> Do you remember her uh, first election? Just like how, like, It kind of some sort of reminded me of of Jenks uh, campaign in that they just threw everything yeah. at her, everything like for a state senate seat, you know. Um, I know, and it became like national news and the thing. And man, it's just the the barriers to anyone running for office, like any socialist running for office. I mean, it's it's terrifying. I mean, it's why it's why having the support of something like the DSA is is so helpful because all we got is strength in numbers because they will throw everything at everything you. they'll make things up like completely make things up i mean anyway i don't oh god jank running for congress was like one of the worst times of my life <laughs> like i can't imagine what it was like for him but he's uh bulletproof like he's so resilient it's amazing um but anyway uh why don't we pour some salt on obama and uh. his Third, his third memoir, which, by the way, his, this is the first edition It's crazy. of two editions yeah. of his third memoir. He's only, what I, I, you know, I, I was seeing all the discourse around his new book um, for, for a while, and then I just assumed that it was like his whole presidency. And no, it's just his first term. It only covers the first term. There's going to be another massive book just to get through his second term. Ugh, oh, bungler. Comrade Obama himself, my God, third no, book amazing. about his own life. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, there are some wonderful people out there who have already begun reading the book and they've shared some excerpts. And, you know, if you're on Twitter at all, you might have come across this, um, you know, in some lefty circles. But um, he has some thoughts on Lula da Silva. And I just wish I, I wish Michael were yeah. here to do this yeah. segment with us. Um because he would certainly appreciate uh, the tone of the conversation we're about to have. But, um, you know, in this memoir, he talks about Lula da Silva, who um, was a political prisoner of Bolsonaro's, okay? The whole uh, Lava Jato investigation, Operation Car Wash, 
was um, uh, an effort to pin corruption charges against Lula da Silva and imprison him right before the election. Um, Polls indicated that he was a favorite by far. uh, And Bolsonaro, along with the uh, justice minister, uh, uh, Moro, were like, "Mm, let's just find some weird way to throw him in prison. And that's exactly what happened. Um, Eventually, he was let out. But at that point, it was too late. Bolsonaro had already been elected. Now, Keep in mind, Lula da Silva lifted tens of millions of people in Brazil out of poverty, okay? And he did so understanding that he needed to operate with the system that that already existed. Like, you don't just get elected. Like, this is the thing that drives me crazy, and I love that Michael would, like, drive this point home all the time. People constantly want, like, purity, like, perfect, moral, like you don't ever, you know, people like he's got to operate anyway, he's got to operate under that system. And he did so in a way that prioritized lifting tens of millions of people out of poverty. And uh, he he actually wasn't imprisoned uh, for corruption. Um, So what I wanted to just bring up is, I'm sorry, I'm rambling, just irritates me. But in Obama's book, um, he talks about how Lula da Silva, he compares him to Tammany Hall. So let's look at this um, Twitter thread. I'll read you uh, what it says. Benjamin Fogel, contributing editor um, to Africa as a Country, and Jacobin um, is the one who wrote this thread. And he writes, Obama describes Lula in his new memoir as having the scruples of a Tammany Hall boss. Of course, he has nothing to say about the questionable ethics and illegalities of Lava Jato or Sergio Moro. Of course, Sergio Moro was the justice minister. Um, And then he continues to say, uh, others have pointed out that Obama was suckled at the political teat of the uh, delay uh, machine in Chicago. Oh, daily. Okay, daily machine in Chicago. In my mind, a more objectionable. Oh, Chuck Daly. Okay, got it. Um, In my mind, a more objectionable political machine to Tammany um, and appointed a certain Rahm Emanuel as his chief of staff. Like, as soon as he got elected, Citibank poured money <laughs> into the Obama's administration. Like, there's no question about it. Um, you know, you could read the rest of that, uh, tweet, but to anyone who would argue that Lula da Silva is somehow more corrupt than Obama was is just laughable to say the least. Obama focused a huge portion of his foreign policy. He bungled it, but a huge portion <laughs> of his foreign policy on this pivot to Asia that was a complete and utter disaster. And why did he do that? He did that based on think tanks essentially working with him, think tanks pouring money um, into Democratic campaigns and you know influencing Obama through lobbying. I mean, corruption is how everything runs in this country. So it's just... Like the holier than thou bullshit is what I can't stand. I, I, I said Chuck Daly. Chuck Daly was the coach of the Detroit Pistons. It, uh, it, it's Richard Daly. Richard Daly was the mayor of New York for like fifty years, something absurd like that. Uh, like the Daly, the Daly political machine controlled. Sorry, not New York, Chicago. I don't know what's wrong with me. He, the Daly family controlled Chicago for decades. Um, so no politician was coming up through Illinois politics without the daily machine being on board. Barack Obama named his son to be his chief of staff when he was elected president. Okay. So that's that's, Bill Daly was his chief of staff. So just that's the, that's, that's a political machine. That's how that works. It's a patronage operation. Lula da Silva is 
I mean, it's, I mean, it's, we've, we've talked about it a million times. Michael used to talk about it a million times, but beyond the lifting of people out of poverty in Brazil that he did well, he was president um, of Brazil in the 2000s. His career, like his political trajectory, different from Obama's, Lula da Silva was a, le- a union leader. He, his finger was cut off um, as a factory worker. He then in the late 1970s led a series of wildcat strikes that was the beginning of the end for the military dictatorship. I mean, if you want to talk about like being an anti-fascist, like Lula da Silva was on the front lines of a fight against an oppressive and brutal U.S.-backed military dictatorship. He founded the PT party in 1980, and that was a huge push to end Brazil's military dictatorship in the 1980s. So beyond what he did as president in his dealings with Obama, I mean, his career has always been about helping people, about fighting the most oppressive forces in the universe um, against working people. Um, And the fact that Obama just so just so like just dismissively uh, throws him aside like that, it's just it's so disgusting. I mean, if if Barack Obama had done like an just a one one thousandth of a percentage point of what Lula has done in his life, um, like he 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 would be proud. But he hasn't even done that. Um, he's done less than that. He's done he's done active amounts of harm. I mean, I, the the more the, the 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 bigger distance I get from Obama, um, the more um, the more insidious I find him as a political figure. In that he came around in a moment when there was this really age defining. Uh, economic crisis and financial collapse. Definitely. Really, th- those Definitely, moments yeah. are opportunities, just like Rahm Emanuel, who, by the way, then became the mayor of, of Chicago, a little member of Disaster. the political machine. Um, talk about a Tammany Hall uh, machine. Um, the, 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 that, the, the, a good crisis, you cannot let it go to waste. And what Obama, Barack Obama did by hinting as this transformative change figure, as this left figure, you know, that that he was able to do out of pure um, personal charisma and superficial appeals to sort of hope and change um, was to absorb all that rage and energy and then just basically diffuse it, you know? And, and then of course he delivered nothing, which then led to Trump. So the, the, the the actual political effects of Obama like are negative. Whereas the political effects of Lula, you know, who is uneducated, did not go to Harvard like Barack Obama, doesn't know the polite niceties that you need to do to operate within the elite like Barack Obama has learned, who is, is an unquestioned net positive on the world. So it's just, it's it's infuriating to me. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is, by the way, this is just one um, part, like one small excerpt yeah. um, from this book. And it's it's getting a lot of attention because of how ridiculous it is. But going back to what you were saying about, you know, what the priorities were for Lula versus, you know, the economic priorities for Obama. I mean, what did he do with that defining moment? You know, this opportunity to really shift economic priorities um, toward working people in America, right, as opposed to Wall Street. Well, Obama's administration immediately bails out Wall Street, refuses to really prosecute anyone, uh, for the widespread fraud and, um, you know, illegal behavior that was taking place that actually led to that economic collapse. And under Obama's watch, th- you know, the disparity between the rich and the poor continued to widen, right? So it's just, again, it goes back to this delusional self-perception of, like, I'm holier than thou, I'm better, 
just looking down at yeah. other leaders um, when refusing to take a good hard look at, you know, how your so-called leadership in this country was so disastrous for so many working people, you know, and, and the ramifications of that not only impact those working people, um, but continue to impact governance in this country. You know, it, it continues to like, you're right. It, it leads to a Donald Trump type character, because if you have someone like like Obama, who both in 2008 and in 2012 ran on this message, this economic populist message, he did. He would tap into that for his campaigning. And then as soon as he's elected, you'd be like, psych, just kidding. <laughs> yeah, people don't trust you or your party anymore. Right. I mean, that's so why they got crushed. That that's why they got crushed everywhere, everywhere else. You know, like they they got crushed in the state legislatures. I mean, the, the Democrats are like are a decrepit. I mean, even though there are like there is widespread rejection of Republican policies in the population, the Democrats just can't pick up that slack. And reading Obama's passages on the drone war is one of the most chilling oh, yeah. things I have ever read in my entire life. I mean, it's sociopathic. It's sociopathic. It absolutely is sociopathic. When he talks about, I wanted to give these people education and, you know, a means to a better life, but I was forced to kill them. Like he just openly talks about that, like talking about men in the Middle East. Um, it is just like, I'm, I, I, when I read that, like my jaw hit the ground. I was like, I could not believe that he would put those words to paper that he actually thinks those thoughts that he thinks of that thinks of that in those terms like it's just absolutely chilling to me like this kind of like a um it's like worse than noblesse oblige i don't know it's like a um it's kind of like an updated version of the white man's burden which is weird to talk about say with obama because he was black but <laughs> um it, it's no it's i just get like, what you mean yeah it's it's it was it was absolutely horrifying what can i, I mean, do i just I, I didn't want to, but I had to kill them. Look, to. look what they made what me do. do. They forced me. I wanted to help them, but yeah. they, you know, look what they made me do. Um, it, it's just, it's it's really gross. I mean, uh, yeah, Obama, no good. You know, for all the flaws that the New York Times has, every once in a while, um, their podcast, The Daily, has an interview that I think is pretty good and enlightening. And um, this week they had... Um, a man who you grew up in Kabul, he lived in Kabul, and he talked about um, what it was like to live there when the uh, you know war began in in during uh, Bush's administration, and he specifically talked about the drone strikes and how terrifying it was to live in a country where, on yeah. one hand, the Taliban is forcing you to wear turbans, like you have to wear turbans, but if you're wearing turbans. The U.S. military can't tell whether you're a kid going to school or if you're, you know, so-called enemy combatant that they're trying to target. So, yeah. so many civilians died, um, you know, from those drone strikes. And he would talk about how he would make he would risk getting caught by the Taliban, not wearing his turban. And then he would put it on right before he would enter the classroom. Um, so he wouldn't get in trouble. He was like afraid for his life. And so think about the number of people living in that region who have seen their loved ones killed by these drone strikes, civilians killed by these drone strikes. Yeah. And then how insanely insulting it is to have Bill Maher types say in regard to how Muslims feel about America, though they hate us because they hate us. No one right. can explain or, it. They hate or us because, because, or because women can drive and shit. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. Um, the Obama administration reclassified enemy combatants to mean any military aged male, essentially. Like there was like any male between the ages of like 16 and 
48 or something like that, was described as an enemy combatant in the official statistics. You know, any death, meaning like if they found a cadaver of a, a guy who was between those ages, I was like, oh, he's an enemy combatant. You know, like that. So the cynicism um, from Obama on this is just it's it's absolutely breathtaking. And, you know, the other the other passage that I that was floating around that also made me miss miss Mike was hearing Obama talk about his college days and how he read Marx and Foucault uh, in order to get pussy, essentially. And then he got friend zoned. Yeah, yeah. I can't believe he he wrote about that. Like, especially right now. Like, I feel like everyone is incredibly sensitive about everything. I'm like, wow, Obama wrote about... Yeah. You know, how he's trying to pick up on women. Okay, cool. So yeah, yeah it was the it was the pre it, it well, it was the pre-woke era, but I just like I'm just imagining uh I'm imagining uh Michael Brooks doing uh Nation of Islam Obama uh in order to like while while trying to pick up a, a chick <laughs> by like quoting Mark oh Sir. <laughs> it would be yeah. That would be that would be a good bit. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, well, I guess we'll see what comes out in the uh, second edition of his third memoir. Right. Um, fourth. That's fourth. I mean, who knows? I, am I being too cruel in in no. just harping on that? No. I, I don't know. It's ridiculous. It's the most narcissistic came out thing in 1995. Ever. Yeah, dreams of my father. Yeah, dreams. Yeah. Dreams of my father. Uh, Nineteen ninety-five, and then um, Audacity of Hope was published in 06. Um, yeah. You know. And, and of now course we got, he ran for president in 08. Yeah. Yeah. And now we're going to get at least two more. We're probably going to get another one. I mean, he got paid like a bajillions and bajillions of dollars. Like his his upfront uh, uh, fee for this book was like just totally absurd. I don't know. Like, again, just uh, at the end of the day, the political effects of Obama, even though he is personally like a cool guy and, you know, kind of has a got, has some swag to him. The political effects of Obama are incredibly destructive. Um, just, just very, very sinister. Uh, and this book just really, really has crystallized just like what a rotten man he is at his core, like what a rotten worldview he has, like what a sort of authoritarian and frankly conservative worldview he has. I mean, Andrew Sullivan, who like I despise obviously, um, but when he was like doing the daily dish and, and during the Obama years, he kept on insisting like, no, 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 I like Obama because he's a conservative. Like I'm a conservative, but I like Barack Obama because he's a conservative. And at the time I was always like, yeah, okay. You're kind of like tying yourself into knots there, you know? Um, but in retrospect, he was hundred percent right. Barack Obama yeah. is and always was and always will be a conservative. Which makes his campaigning even worse because of like just yeah. – he knew he knew yeah. what would resonate with voters. He knew he was lying about what he actually believes. Yeah. Um, but he used it as a campaigning tactic and then immediately uh, abandoned the, the very people who elected him yeah. as soon as he was elected. If I could interject with an op-ed from January You were 16th. like 12 years old when Obama was elected president. Kale is his birthday today. We always make we always make fun of Kale for being so young because he's such a smarty pants. Like he's like way smarter than both Ann and I. Let's let's put that clear to the audience because Ann and I came up at a different age. Um, And now Kale, who is so young and handsome and beautiful, but is also super smarty pants. So we only can get him on the fact that he's a child. Dude, no, but that that actually makes me feel even worse about how much smarter he is. Like. You're yeah. 10 years younger than me, Kale. It's insane. Um, <laughs> yeah, but anyway. Um, blame Bernie. That's, that's all it is. That's Bernie, yeah. But I want to I read something relevant to what you're saying right now, an op-ed from a couple months before I was born. 
uh, from the Village Voice. <laughs> Amazing! Amazing! Um, from the Village Voice by a one Adolph Reed Jr. He mm. writes, in Chicago, for instance, we've got <clears throat> we've gotten a full oh, yeah. taste of the new breed of foundation. If you know, you know. I'm choking as soon yeah. as I start. In Chicago, for instance, we've got <clears throat> a foretaste of the new breed of foundation-hatched black communitarian voices, one of them a smooth Harvard lawyer with impeccable do-good credentials, ambiguous to repressive neoliberal politics, has won a state senate seat on a base mainly in the liberal foundation and development worlds. His fundamentally brute, uh, bootstrap line was softened by a panit, um, what is it, patina of the rhetoric of authentic community, talk about meeting in kitchens, small-scale solutions to social problems, and the predictable elevation of process over program the point where identity politics converges with old-fashioned middle-class reform is favoring form over substance. I suspect that his ilk is the wave of the future in U.S. black politics, Man. as in Haiti, and wherever else the International Monetary Fund has sway. So far, the black activist response <laughs> hasn't been up to the challenge. We have to do better. He's referring to then-state Senator Barack Obama in 1996. Like, a perfect... It's absolutely yeah. wild well, where's the that. lie? I mean, yeah. Where is yeah. life? And again, you know, that's what ideology gives you is the tools to interpret events as they happen accurately. I mean, it's, you know, I remember when Bernie, when Bernie first kind of um, started catching steam in 2015, 20, early 2016 and stuff, like one of the big things was like these kind of supercut videos of him, uh, you know, from the 1980s and 1990s, like just diagnosing every American problem perfectly accurately and like just how it resonated with people today because like no one else was talking about those things is because bernie was armed with the tools of ideology just like adolf reed has always been and that's why adolf reed can see something like barack obama which you know like everyone kind of fell for um and for exactly who he was was before anyone else well everyone everyone has ideology i think with adolf it's like it's a material. Well, the correct worldview. ideology, fail, right. not the wrong ideology. Right. The ones we like, the the correct one. <laughs> right, but it's it's because it's materialist. It's because someone like Adolf Reed or others, kind of in that political tradition, are asking, what are the uh, the structural factors that are uh, limiting someone's choices or kind of pre-selecting certain choices? So, you know you're in a situation, you only have three options really available. You don't have everything available. And it's the structure that tells you what those options are. And in capitalism, it's mostly uh, economic questions. It's mostly uh, who's funding you. Uh, what are the, for instance, if you're a state legislator, um, you are to an extent beholden to the interests of capital because uh, if you don't deliver what capitalists want, they own all the shit. They can just say, uh, maybe we'll just move to a different district. Uh, we're going to disinvest. Yeah. We're going to hold our money. We're or a different country. Strikes. Yeah. So, like, you know, Obama has known how to play the game since the very beginning when he first got in. And one of the other things I want to mention is that when he first comes in, uh, not only does he, he bail out the banks, he bails out the auto industry and smashes the unions in Detroit. That he runs yeah. on card check and then immediately says fuck you guys, like, and in fact, goes to back rooms with the bankers and says, no one's going to touch you. Like, we have documentation yeah. of what Obama said to the bankers and to corporate America. Tim Geithner, what do you think? Oh, it's soften the, uh, foam the runway, um, soften the runway or whatever. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's... 
But don't worry, he'll make up for it later with his Netflix documentary about how important unionized God. jobs in the auto industry were. It's, it's mind-boggling. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, well, so there's there's a couple super chats already in, uh, but if you guys have questions, we have a few minutes, so send us some more super chats um, in the YouTube comment thing, and we'll try to get to them. But the first one, just kind of still on this train of thought, uh, Champagne Communista asks, do you think Obama is just trying to do damage control and respond to recent criticism of his, of him culturally in this new book? I mean... Yeah, it's really bad yeah, damage I mean, control if that's what that is. Like, I don't know. Well, I mean, is it though? I mean, I, I think that you know. I mean, I think I, I I suspect the libs will eat this up. You know, all of this. Well, the and libs, the libs cohort. already loved him. Like, the libs thought he that he was perfect, right? right? Like, the, his approval rating is insanely high, especially among yeah. libs. But if he was doing this for damage control, I don't know. Maybe among um, critics on the left. All he really did was double down on the very things that we have issues with, right? Yeah. Um, whether it's his foreign policy, uh, his view of people like Lula da Silva, who actually prioritized working people uh, rather than um, private businesses and executives. Like, he just doubled down on everything that we yeah. don't like about his policies. Right. I mean, and with like this, the Netflix deal becoming all of these things, like, it's a business like Obama. Well, it's a business, but, but it's also, but there is something to image building and, and, and legacy building. I mean, that's, there's a famous Winston, Winston Churchill line, you know, which is like uh, something along the lines of like history will treat me kindly. Cause I'm going to write it, you know, and he wrote his own, like, you know, his own like 25 volume history of the, of the second world war, and you, have all you know, of it, right? just to make, yeah, I own all of it it's right here. I've read all of it. Um, but yeah, I mean that's a, that's a good way to do it. Is like you know Julius Caesar did the same thing when he wrote his his own history about about his military campaigns, and it's like yeah, it's a good if you write the book on yourself, it's a good way to ensure that the narrative about yourself is controlled by you. Um, and now like the modern the Michael way to Jordan do that is miniseries. That, yeah, exactly. For a great great example, I mean, I ate it up yeah. the whole time. I knew that this was Me just too. like an image laundering <laughs> campaign, but I ate it up. Um, obviously, Michael Jordan, who gives a shit, he's just a fucking basketball player. But like um, Barack Obama, yeah, I mean, that's that's all part of it. It's all it's all part of like legacy management. Right. Um, let me. So here's another question. Um, Josh Keto asks, uh, well, first says, great show, guys. Thank you, Josh. Uh, do you think there is an opportunity for the left to make inroads with resistance moms and dads who will be pissed mm -hmm. off when Biden doesn't prosecute Trump officials? Um, I don't know. Maybe, uh, you know, it depends on which. Yeah, I mean, the the I I fully support in general, like full prosecution for elite crimes. You know, like I think that was one of going back to Obama. You know, just the sort of we're gonna look forward, not back kind of routine, which is he didn't invent, but he kind of. Uh, I mean, it was really grotesque at that point because all the Bush war crimes. Um, but I mean, it really started kind of like with Nixon getting pardoned by Ford. But um, yeah, I mean, this this creates elite impunity. And, um, you know, I, I as as kind of like annoyed as I've always w was with like all the Russiagate stuff and like the, the impeachment of Donald Trump and all stuff, I always knew it was kind of uh, bullshit, essentially. But, you know, there are myriad crimes that Trump has committed and Trump's cronies have committed uh, in the administration, self-dealing, just blatant corruption, you know, like um, 
if I were uh, President Biden, I would prosecute all those things because you, we have to find a way to end the culture of impunity. Um, and uh, and Trump is in a weird way, like a, a, a unique opportunity for that because he's so, you know, ridiculous. Like it was parents? much easier for them. Yeah. Well, it's much easier for all the people to be like, oh, Bush, you know, even Obama in his Obama in in the new book is talking about like how when he was on the road, like on in the car on his way to his inaugural with Bush, you know, you know, Bush was attending the uh, inauguration of Barack Obama and people were protesting Bush. <laughs> um, Obama was like, I was like so angry at those people for protesting. And like, I felt bad for him. I wanted to, you know, like tell them to stop protesting Bush. And it's like, yeah, it's a it's a club. And because Trump is kind of not really in that club, there is an opportunity to sort of maybe, um, I don't know, but I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't think Biden's going to do it. He's not going to do it. So. so this is my prediction, just based on um, what happened after Obama won in 2008. Um, so I remember in that. So I started working at TYT in 07. And at that point, I wasn't doing politics at all at TYT. I was like guest booking and doing entertainment news. Um, but I remember witnessing Jank cover how Obama like like immediately failed. Like as soon as he got elected, he immediately abandoned um everything he campaigned on. Um, you know, starting with, you know, not even attempting single payer health care, uh, the fact that he continued on with Bush era foreign policy, all that. So I remember Jenk would just criticize him and it was justified, you know, it was based in evidence. And Daily Coast which he would write on on a regular basis, like went nuts. And he was the enemy. Yeah. Like, how dare you criticize Obama? And they just absolutely hated him. They hated anyone who had the audacity to speak up about how Obama had abandoned his campaign promises. Um, and so I think that's likely to happen like with, with Biden. So um, look, and Biden is a little different from Obama. Biden was kind of like, Listen here, Jack, I'm not going to do nothing for you, <laughs> you know? Yeah, Maybe yeah exactly. Right? Yeah. So it's a little, a little different. But, um, you know, even on the issues that the resistant types care about, like potentially prosecuting um, someone as disastrous as Donald Trump, I think that in the end, uh, they'll probably viciously go after uh, members of the left that want to hold Biden accountable rather than holding Biden accountable for not doing enough. Um, to go after the very person he scaremongered about throughout his entire campaign. Right. And also, if you're Biden, ima think, imagine that you're Biden. What is in your interest as the president? Like, why would you set the precedent of, oh, we're going to criminalize. Yeah, they're going to go after Hunter jail. eventually. <laughs> right. Well, the thing is, like, yeah, why would you why would you set the precedent of jailing former presidents when, like, a lot of the crimes that you could get him for, perhaps not every single president, but, like, it's a dirty world and they all have dirty hands. Like, yeah. Why would you, well, you that certainly up for... prosecute all of them for war crimes? You know, <laughs> well, you could. The, the other thing, though, is that like, remember, like the probably the most common or at least what I thought was like the most common uh, kind of pushback against critiques from the left of Obama was his hands are tied. It's like what he's saying in his new book, effectively, like you know, he can't do it because he doesn't have the means of doing it or like the Republicans made him do that or like, I can't gonna... stand it. I can't stand that stuff. Sorry to interrupt you, Kale. But like, we're already seeing it with Kamala, for instance. Yeah. And it's like, we're seeing the resistance types defending Kamala Harris, fist bumping Lindsey Graham on the Senate floor as he's enabling Donald Trump 
in his ridiculous, like, lunatic talking points about the election. And, you know, what are you doing? Why are you fist bumping him? And I know that's not a big deal, but it's about the optics of it. Right. And so the response that we got for criticizing her for doing it is, well, what do you want her to do? Do you want her to be mean to him? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Then she's going to be called um, an angry black woman. And we can't have that. So she's got to be nice, even with people who are trying to uh, stage a coup in this country. What? Like the the excuses that people come up with as they're being punched in the face is incredible to me. Like, wake up. Right. Well, and that's where people on the left have to be assertive of like an alternative interpretation of what's going on because we can't let the or the Biden administration just go back to his hands are tied. He can't really do it. It's like what it's like when Nando's segment was today uh, all about the uh, canceling student debt. Like McConnell's not stopping him from doing that. I mean, he obviously he's not president yet, but McConnell won't be stopping him from doing that. Like, and you know, Biden's going to push some wishy-washy policy or, or sign some wishy-washy policy into into law uh, and say, this is the best I could do. Sorry. Like, what about the ending la- the war in Yemen? Right. You know, like, yeah, the United States could like Biden could do that one. Like the second he takes office, he could do it. He could just be like, no, we're not we're not going to, you know, help the Saudis commit genocide in Yemen. Um, like what I, I wonder what the excuses will be. Or what the narratives that will emerge from that will be. They're like, I mean, whether they'll demonize the Houthis as some sort of terrorist organization or they're going to make the Saudis woke. I don't know. Like, I don't know what they're going to do <laughs> um, to keep that one going. Um, woke Saudis would be like the, the most incredible about face in human history of just like one of the most like diabolical evil ruling classes, just like this evil, horrible monarchy that like yeah. turns around and is like, oh, we need to diversify the monarchy. We yeah, we need racism, yeah. anti-racism trainings end, in the monarchy. We're gonna end micro <laughs> microaggressions within the sort of palace halls uh, <laughs> in in Riyadh. Yeah, uh, you know what? Let's do it. Screw it. This let's is do a weird it. And micro it. microaggressions do happen in the Saudi royal family. Kale, you don't know about it, but because you're a white man even though you're latinx uh but um you know it happens dude yeah i just don't have the i don't have the the standpoint to understand that truly Um, true (laughs) i um two more guys uh first one um kyle's asking can you guys talk about the corporate coup of uh of uh, Shama, Shama Sawant in Seattle. Amazon is fighting back right. against her big business tax campaign by trying to use the legal system to oust her from the city council. Yeah, I don't know enough I'm, about it, but go ahead, Nando. No, I, I don't. I, I haven't been following it too closely, but this isn't the first time that Amazon that Seattle voters have voted um, something. You know, whether it was the you know there was the, the big tax to uh, fund homeless shelters and things like that. This was a couple of years ago. Um, that Amazon just basically used its muscle to sidestep. I mean, it it raises several important dilemmas, I guess, for the the for for just basic governance in our country. In that, like these kind of small local governments just do not have the the power to stand up to something like as powerful as Amazon, right? Um, it's it's really crazy. I mean, I, I again, I haven't been following this story, the latest, kind of very closely, but. Um, the sort of big structural issues are there um, that even when sort of voters 
step up and try to like do something, you know, and, and vote the right things in, in, in the ballot line that the, the companies mm-hmm. can just be like, nah, we're just not, not going to do it. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's what happened with Uber, right? Um, yeah. Uber just yeah. decided not to follow California state laws. Um, yeah. Meant to protect labor. It's just, and it's, what are they going to do? And California is not, you know, uh, a, it's got money. <laughs> so it's just amazing. Yeah. Um, maybe we should have her on to kind of talk about it. Um, yeah. I'd love to hear your experiences with that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, and this is also, you know, something that I've mentioned before at a different show, but this is like the critical reason why the left over the next decade has to, uh, you know, we continue the electoral work, but we have to become embedded within working class neighborhoods, yeah. communities, especially workplaces, because like the most powerful entity in society is the capitalist class and they want to destroy our program. And so they, they've destroyed far more powerful politicians in the past. Like they can take down a city council member or a state Senator. No problem. Yeah. I mean, it's, we, you know, in some ways we've been, you know, doing a good job of taking advantage of like the hollowness of neoliberalism of just like, there is no state infrastructure for a lot of this stuff. So yeah. DSA candidates can can get through in some of these races pretty successfully. Yeah. And if these parties don't ex- are just like non-existent shells, you know, in a way. Right. Um, yeah. But but at the end of the day, like they, you know, if we start getting, you know, we're, we start touching actual levers of power, and we'll, I think, what's going to happen in Albany in the next year is going to be very interesting with uh, with Julia and mm. others uh, with like super majorities of Democrats. Um, if we start touching levers of power, like they will come down on us really freaking hard. And so like the way that we've learned historically that the left can fight back, the way that we accumulate power is through working class organizations, institutions, the labor movement, um, and all of the appendages of that, right? That it's working people or the vast majority of people. And so it's, we have to meet all of their needs. Uh, and these institutions need to be able to wield their collective power um, and that's, you know, rebuilding something that our ancestors, our predecessors in this, uh, you know, it took them many decades. Um, you know, it's, it's not going to happen overnight, but we have to be serious and be focused on how do we build power, not just in legislatures, but outside of legislatures in, uh, in workplaces, basically it primarily, but neighborhoods, communities, yeah. All right. Uh, let's take one more. All right. Well, this one, I'm being selfish on this one because someone, Eclectic Miscellanea asked me, could, if Kale could have one political gift for his birthday, one thing that he could change related to the current political situation, what would it be? Medicare for all. Come on. That's like, it's the most yeah. important thing that we need right now is like, because... Uh, people are sick and dying. It'd be good to first address like the fact that people are dying. I think that's a yeah. good starting point. Um, and then healthcare is the most important issue on the bargaining table for unions. So like if everything I just said about building working class power makes sense and you have to do it through unions, like focus on the thing that's most important to building their power in the workplace, like get healthcare off the table so they can fight for wage increases and, and pull everyone's yeah. wages up like union or non-union. So, yeah. And, and like the amount of freedom that would lead to, right. Where you don't feel tied to a job that you might not like. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, Kale, you're good people. 
like after every, uh, you know, show that we do, um, I'm always talking to my partner about how much I love doing the show. Um, and how you're, hmm. you are just good people. I love it. Yeah. So I like that you mentioned Medicare for all. Um, okay. yeah. So everyone, everyone give Kale a big birthday shout out. Um, yeah. and you know, I, I'm sure Kale, one of the other things that you would love is for people to share this episode, you know, share yes. the stream, like the stream. That's one of the best That's ways. That's how to we're going to get Medicare for all. That's right. <laughs> it's one of the ways, right? Everything Building, I just um, said, just put it to the side for a second. In order to get Medicare for All, we need you to like and subscribe and share the video. So that is my yes. wish to all of you. Please do that. Um, and uh, and then we'll be back in the future to do more of these shows. But only if you do those three things. So, All right. And then uh, next weekend is Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, we're actually going to take that Saturday off, get a little break. Um, but we'll be back with another episode of Weekends the following weekend, following Saturday. Um, thank you to Kale for all his hard work in production, even on the night of his birthday and this morning as well. And Nando, you're always uh, one of my favorite people to do anything with, uh, including this show. So thank you. And for everyone else, have an awesome weekend. Have an awesome night. And we'll see you in two weeks. Mm-hmm.